Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Mina Kim, co-host of Forum on KQED, and your moderator today. As the club continues to host virtual events, they're grateful for the continued support of their members and donors. Visit CommonwealthClub.org to learn more about membership. The club would also like to thank the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. And it is now my pleasure to welcome Pan Ki-moon, former Secretary General of the United Nations and author of the memoir, Resolved, Uniting Nations in a Divided World. Throughout his diplomatic career, Secretary General Ban worked to establish international peace and combat climate change and poverty. He's advocated for vulnerable communities and women's rights and gender equality around the world. His humanitarian efforts continue as he mentors a new generation of global citizens and leaders. And just as a reminder, if you have a question for our guest, you can submit those in the chat. Mr. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, welcome. I... It's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Thank you, Mina Kim, and Kara, Mark, and the members of the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco. Uh, it's a great honor and for, pleasure for me to be with you. And thanks to all of you for your interest in my life story and my philosophy for our future. I hope uh, my memoir resolved. <coughs> will spread my ideas and stories to the wide audience of the world uh, that is responsible uh, for the world today and tomorrow. I hope it will inspire possibility, spark action, improve cooperation, and ultimately encourage people around the world to become global citizens. As you know, my own lifespan coincides with uh, colonialism, wars, dictatorship, and struggle for democracy in my country, and also constant threat, security threat, caused by North Korean nuclear issues, etc. I was raised during the Korean War in 1950s and came of age amid terrible poverty and watched my country grow from dictatorship to stable and prosperous democracy with the help of the United Nations, uh, led by the United States. Without UN troops, humanitarian agencies, and <clears throat> advisors, Korea would not be as she is today. These experiences grounded me in the importance of peace, security, opportunity for all, and collective responsibility beliefs that shaped my life and my tenure as a Secretary General of the United Nations. You could say I'm a child, I was a child of war and the product of multilateralism. I cannot, I can credit San Francisco for my early love of America. In fact, uh, when I was only 18 years old, I was lucky uh, enough to have been invited by American Red Cross Society. Uh, and my first visit was to San Francisco. Uh, and I was uh, <clears throat> welcomed by my host family, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Patterson. They regarded me as their fourth child. 
fourth child, and teaching me uh, <coughs> English slangs, you know, ping pongs, and they brought me here and there. That was eye-opening for me. Small and young, poor boy from a rural Republic of Korea. Then suddenly, San Francisco, United States. Now, as a Secretary General of the United Nations, I visit Patterson's home, house, where I stayed a week there. And particularly, when I retired from the United Nations in 2017, I came back to that house to celebrate 100th birthday of Mrs. Patterson. Uh, She passed away uh, soon after that. But this is my very happy memory. Then we went to Washington, D.C., and on August 29, 1962, all these uh, foreign students, about 140, uh, were invited by the White House and met uh, President Kennedy. That was the most enlightening and most memorable opportunity for me, even now. At that time, President Kennedy told us that, well, you know, national boundaries doesn't mean much, but what is important question is that whether you are ready to extend your helping hand. That moment, I thought that I should do something for my country. How can I serve my country? I wanted to become a diplomat. And later, I became the diplomat of the world. That is my story, and based on United Nations Charter, Peace and Security Development and Human Rights, that has been my guiding, guiding lines and principles. Human rights are not only voting and free speech, but true equality. There must be opportunity for all, regardless of sex, race, religion, or, or region. Development is not just about fighting poverty, but pursuing dignity of human being. No person can achieve their potential without good health, like global health now, quality education, as you, you are having in the United States, sanitation, decent work, enough food, and the sustainable development. Peace is more complicated than just a cessation of uh, conflict. True peace requires security and stability for people who often have rarely or never experienced it. Hostilities consume energy, resource, time, and human lives. Conflicts make human rights and development impossible. So whenever I travel to the region in distress, I would try to visit a local camp of refugees. I really wanted to meet young people and encourage them telling them that United Nations is helping you as they did for me in 50, 60 years ago. These are some of my stories. Of course, I have been meeting various kinds of people, dictators and democracy leaders and business leaders and civil society leaders. Therefore, I hope that uh, these long-term goals of the United Nations will really require perseverance, patience, and creativity to bring peace and sustainable, sustainable uh, growth to all the people. So while I am still very much um, 
concern about this um, politicized and carbonized and polarized world, but I think still we have a hope. So I really count on the members of Commonwealth San Francisco to continue to play a global citizenship role. And this is my just a brief beginning uh, opening statement, but I'll be uh, more than happy in engaging dialogue with all of you. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, thank you, Secretary Bond, for starting us off with those lovely opening remarks. It's actually really nice to hear that the San Francisco Bay Area was your introduction to America and the kindness of the Pattersons that you mentioned played a big role in helping you fall in love with this country and inspired your commitment to international issues, which I remember reading about in your book, Resolved. The other thing I remember reading about is actually bringing us to present day, your assessment of the way that the United Nations has responded to the global coronavirus pandemic. You have actually been pretty candid about how UN agencies could have been more involved. I'm wondering if you can talk about the differences the UN could have made here, in your view. Uh, You see that uh, this this has caused, uh, first of all, Uh, by human activities, degradating ecosystems. So it is sort of um, two sides of one coin, climate climate crisis and pandemic. They are just uh, two sides of one coin. Had we cared our environment more and had we care our nature, the privileges of uh, nature, we would have been much better. Then second issue is multilateralism. So lack of multilateralism has caused much, much more sufferings for world's people. Fortunately, now with the President Biden, multilateralism is now returning to its own own, place. More unity, solidarity, and more working Joint together, joint working together. This is a very important one. At the beginning of this coronavirus, the world has been fighting about so-called origin of coronavirus. Whether it was China or China was denying, and there were some investigations, etc. President Trump was beating on all this rather than caring people. Then. <clears throat> It has been all the same. Every, each and every country was going their own, their way. Rich countries, of course, they were capable to provide uh, all medical, medical support, and later vaccine was developed. But those poor countries in the uh, developing, developing world, they were just helpless. That is why more people unnecessarily had to be uh, affected and died. Now that multilateralism is coming back, I am very much encouraged by the recent G7 summit meeting. Uh, I think G7 summit meeting took place during one of the most challenging times in recent history, caused by COVID-19 climate crisis in parallel. Therefore, my, our lesson is that unless we work together and address these challenges with uh, global partnership, we will have uh, no hope. Now, G7 
has committed to provide uh, one billion doses of vaccines, among which uh, uh, President Biden said that U.S. would uh, uh, take care of uh, 500 million doses. But I think that there should be there should be more. More. It's a very good, uh, very good uh, political leadership. But I hope that um, there should be more to help uh, uh, developing countries. There is um, COVAX. Uh, COVAX, you know, um, yes. WHO has been really doing, but WHO is a small UN organization without much resources, without full support of the member states like the United States and European Union and other wealthy countries. It will be only the people who will be uh, suffering, particularly in a developing, developing world. Yes. Do you think your successor, though, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, may have missed an opportunity here? I only say this because you did cite the way that the UN responded to Ebola as an example of how it could have improved its response to COVID-19. Well, you know... <clears throat> He has his own limitation uh, during the time of uh, President uh, uh, Trump. Uh, Trump, uh, President Trump has almost uh, paid no attention to multilateralism. And in fact, uh, he, U.S. withdrew from WHO at the beginning and the peak of this crisis. That was immoral. There may be some complaints about the way WHO had been doing. But before complaining, we should have first acted to save human lives, to provide all medical support. But just uh, withdrawing from WHO, the main, main health organization of the United Nations, then what does that mean? The UN would be almost uh, you know, uh, powerless without strong support of the member states, particularly the United States. That's the largest country. So that's what I regret. And that also reminds me, is just con reminds me of what I did during 2014 Ebola crisis. When Ebola crisis swept the Western Africa, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, United Nations took immediate action immediate action, together, working together with the uh, United States and European Union, WHO, and I was leading, I was leading. For the first time in the history of the United Nations, you Americans, British, and French, they dispatched the United Nations forces, forces. Normally we have a peacekeeping forces, but for global health purpose, Soldiers were deployed in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone to block the movement of the people. That was the way uh, we were able to uh, eradicate Ebola in a very quick time. Yeah. You, you've talked a lot about your concerns about multilateralism. And I mean, I guess we all knew multilateralism would take a hit when former President Trump was elected because in many ways he campaigned on that. 
But I wonder if you were surprised at the extent of the damage and disarray that it caused. As you point out, he withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. He withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement, which I know is something near and dear to you. I'm wondering how costly you think that was and in what ways that sort of movement away from multilateralism. I would say, frankly speaking, as a former Secretary General, I may not be able to say so uh, uh, if I were still in the position. Uh, But now I'm a private citizen and I have a free speech. Uh, That does not mean that uh, we don't have a free speech, but there is uh, some political sensitivity uh, when dealing with the head of state of the United States, etc., but what I believe that uh, what President Trump did withdraw from Paris Climate Change Agreement, that was uh, politically very short-sighted and economically irresponsible, scientifically wrong, uh, scientifically very wrong. So I don't know what, what had motivated him to withdraw from such a hard-fought Paris Agreement. It took almost 20 years to negotiate to reach that Paris Agreement. It took nine years of my time as a Secretary General out of 10 years. It was I you know, who really devoted whole time and energy, mobilizing the leadership of the political leadership, business leaders, leaders and civil society. That is the work of uh, whole working together. Then suddenly the strongest, most resourceful country withdrew. That has given serious damage, particularly political, in political sense. Now that President Biden has taken as his first presidential action to sign and return to climate change and also convened on April 22nd on Earth Day, uh, a summit meeting on climate, that was very much reassuring, reassuring. Now we have to do much more to overcome and cover what we had lost. lost. Then JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action on Iranian nuclear issue. This was also um, very much irresponsible as a number one G1 country. Uh, in, by any standard, United States is the leader country of the world, and everybody is looking to the United States. That is a reality. While each and every member state of the United Nations are equal, but still there are some, some leader country among equal. That is United States. I think U.S. government leaders and citizens should bear in mind this kind of... Um, Uh, global responsibility of the United States. Yes. You know, as I hear you use words like that his behaviors were immoral and short-sighted, and as you talk about things that you can say now as a private citizen, I'm reminded of a description I once heard of the role of UN Secretary General as having a great deal of power and almost simultaneously none at all (laughs) in the sense of, do you think that that's an accurate description? Uh. You know, one of my predecessors said that uh, <clears throat> the UN Secretary General's job is most impossible job on earth. 
So it's UN Secretary seems to be uh, very well respected. I think in terms of respect, you know, I have been enjoying all this respect. So, you know, sometimes uh, I felt very much humbled by all this respect. Looks like we have uh, full power, but sometimes we are lacking resources. But U.S. president and other national government leaders, they have power and resources. Of course, there are some degree of differences in terms of resources and also power. But United Nations represents views of whole worlds based on U.N. Charter. The pillars, three pillars of the United Nations are peace and security, human rights, and sustainable development. There is no leader in the world who can represent the whole world like this. So that I felt very much honored. At the same time, I had to deal with each and every leader of UN member states so that they could act as global, global leader based on global citizenship. But what I can tell you now, again, freely, I have not seen many such leaders who were genuine global leaders with global leadership. They are at best, at best they are national leaders. They were easy, easy hostages of domestic politics. So that is sad. That is why we are having more and more conflicts, more and more divisions. Now, by every standard, we are living in 21st century. All the science and technology, communication and tra transportations, and we can get everything what we need. But the world has become uneven in terms of availability of these resources. So that's the role of the United Nations. That's why the Sustainable Development Goals with the 17 goals were adopted during my time. So I regard this Paris Climate Change Agreement and Sustainable Development Goals are two most proudest, I think, proudest achievement during my time. Of course, you know, I, I cannot claim that that was my job only. That was the work of all, all the people of the world. You said you have not seen too many truly global leaders. Is there one who comes to mind for you? Well, uh, you know, even though he is not with us, uh, Nelson Mandela, he, I met him. I met him while he was uh, still uh, alive. Uh, <clears throat> then he is really somebody who who can be real a global leader based on global citizenship. That is why he is respected. After 28 years of imprisonment by those people, he just forgave uh, everyone, everyone. And uh, <clears throat> I think he has shown, he led by example, led by example. What I have been speaking to world leaders and also particularly uh, uh, leadership level people is that they should lead by example. Their words and deeds must be consistent. I've been trying 
to do that. But of course, I'm not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person, but I, I'm still trying to lead by example. I, I want to take a moment, if I could, to talk about North Korea with you and the best way to address the challenges posed by North Korea. I'm thinking about this, too, as you talk. You talked about the responsibility of the United States and your concerns about the leadership of ex-President Trump. You know, he engaged with leader Kim Jong-un in unprecedented ways during his presidency, three face-to-face summits, uh, I'm wondering if you felt that engagement with Kim yielded anything or if it put the U.S. uh, in a position worse, I guess, than it was before those summits. Whatever kinds of conflicts or differences, engagement, that's the best way to uh, resolve. So in that regard, South Korean government... U.S. government, and many, many countries, European Union, they really have been trying to engage North Korea with sincerity, uh, with genuine sincerity. Uh, But the North, it has been North Korea, which has been really isolating themselves and developing nuclear weapons against all these international rules and regulations particularly non-proliferation treaty, NPT. North Korea is the only country in 21st century who had tested six nuclear bombs, six times. There is no such country. Of course, there were countries like India, Pakistan, and who tested nuclear bombs in the 20th century, 20th century, and they are more or less in a certain you know, framework, within framework. But North Korea is completely out of framework now. That is why President Trump and the Korean presidents, first you know, starting with the Korean president, three successive presidents, like President Kim Dae-jung, President Roh Moo-hyun, President you know, Moon Jae-in, they, bought, they all visit North Korea without having realized any return visit by North Korean leader. But in any way, there were a series of summit meetings between South and North Korea. And there were a series of agreements between South Korean and North Korean side. I was one of such, you know, I myself involved in that very important, the first ever nuclear negotiation in 1991. Then U.S. President, he became, President Trump became the first U.S. President who met North Korean leader. He became the first U.S. President who stepped on the soil of northern side of Korean Peninsula. So in that regard, uh, there were a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, brighter as well as uh, hopeful signs. But all these uh, hopeful expectations uh, just uh, became almost nothing now. North Korea has returned to its uh, real uh, uh, positions, not engaging with uh, either South Korea and United States. Then what I, as a professional uh, career diplomat, uh, there are many 
different styles of negotiation, the way President Trump uh, had been doing was a sort of a top-down approach without caring about the details. So some people, you know, some media criticized that it was a reality show game type of negotiation. But that has given sort of some misunderstandings, mis-expectation, unnecessary expectation on the part of North Korea. Then Kim Jong-un might have expected that he could deal by cheating or by you know, cheating the United States and South Korea. That is very uh, unfortunate things. Now that President Biden has uh, his own strategy, I think President Biden's strategy is more practical, more realistic, sort of a bottom-up approach, making sure that there should be a solid and firm you know, a step-by-step agreement so that uh, at the time when there is a summit meeting, there should be no such um, problems. Now, there was a top-down agreement, Singapore, Singapore in Singapore, but nothing had been implemented. And North Korea has just uh, put themselves into a shell now. They this is a problem now. They have completely blocked themselves, isolated themselves. Their economic system and also economic situation seems to be very dire. And even recently, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un announced sort of arduous march, arduous march, which was announced once in 1990s during his grand grandfather Kim Il-sung. At that time, you should know that more than 3 million people starved to death because of famine. So it seems that under Security Council sanctions of the United Nations upon North Korea, they are not able to have any trade with foreign countries, including United and China too. They are best friend and the strongest supporters. So if I were in their shoes, then I, you know, I should be more practical and realistic for their own people, for the reconciliation between South and North. Why just you know, keep himself isolated like this way? That is a very sad, sad thing. But we have to um, engage North Korea and uh, this now uh, the special representative, uh, special envoy on North Korean issue of United States Ambassador Song Kim is in uh, Seoul, a meeting with the uh, Korean president and the high-level officials discussing the, about the closer and tighter cooperative and consultative relationship and discussions on North Korean issues. I, I was struck by how you, it appeared in your book at least, that the prospect for reconciliation, uh, as you put it, it did feel like you saw that as pretty bleak at this point. Um, the other thing that I was struck by was the detail with which you went into about the role of the Korean War in your life. It broke out when you were six years old and clearly very traumatic for you and your family. Your mother was pregnant and, and gave birth as she was fleeing. Um, 
I'm wondering if how the Korean War, how the trauma of that experience influenced your view of the UN, your view of conflict. Of course, I was just six years old at that time, so I didn't know what was communism like or what was war like, but I only felt by myself difficulties, hunger, and cold, you know, cold weather, and so shivering in the cold weather without much uh, to warm us. And there were no schools. Uh, schools were all destroyed, bombed. So um, our, <clears throat> my life as a young child was very, very difficult. Uh, but we were, <clears throat> we were very hungry. We were very thirsty. But looking back, I think all people, students, children like us, were also thirsty and hungry for good education and for a better future. I think quality-wise, the education which I received 60 years ago might not have been as good quality as of 21st century. There, there was no AI, no computer, or something like this. We only based our learning was based on textbooks. That's all we had. Even textbooks were provided by UNESCO. But our, my mind, my heart was uh, very much full of something to do for a better future. I think that must have motivated me, motivated me uh, to work as um, uh, you know, public, public official, public servant, first for my country. Then as I grew up with my visit to the United States, I was able to open up widely, uh, widely my eyes, my visions. By growing up, I think I made my own you know, commitment as well as my visions different, higher and higher and more to the world. That's why I, I was able to be elected as a Secretary General. But that is why I hope I've been working very hard that I should not let there should be any such kind of a poor and hungry young people in the world in this 21st century. That's why I really paid highest priority on quality education, like a global education first initiative, GEFI. I worked with the Gordon Brown, former Prime Minister of uh, United Kingdom, and also worked together with Malala Yousafzai, the Pakistani girl you know, who was almost killed by a terrorist. But what she said, all these terrorists are more afraid when a girl is reading a book or a girl is holding a pen than you know, weapons. That was quite inspiring. That's why she's still working very hard for promoting this global education. And then I think still there are so many poor people who are suffering from abject poverty. I think all this United Nations goal, sustainable development goals, which were announced during my time, adopted, that is the most ambitious and far-reaching vision for humanity, 
for the betterment of this world. What what do you think is the biggest mistake uh, the UN made during your tenure? What is your your greatest regret during your time as Secretary General? Well, uh, personally speaking, uh, I what I have not been able to do much was on Haiti, Haiti, and also Syria. Now, at the beginning of my term, there was a terrible earthquake. And uh, more than 900,000 people were affected. And uh, tens of thousands of people died because of cholera. Even though it was not the scientifically clear, uh, there was a, a strong protest and complaint that uh, this cholera virus was caused by UN peacekeepers uh, who were positioned there, who were sent there to help Haitian, Haitian people from all these uh, disasters. That was a very unfortunate and regrettable things. Even there was, uh, you know, I've been really trying to uh, mobilize as much as possible. First of all, financial support and uh, all the medical support. I worked very closely with the President uh, Bill Clinton, who was working as Special Envoy of the United Nations on Haiti. And Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State. So we, three of us, mobilized $9.9 billion a day. All the world's leaders, they were one. They all came with a full of support. Then we mobilized WHO, Margaret Chan, Director General at that time, mobilized a lot of medical support. But still, we were far, far, you know, short in, in, in terms of supporting all these people, such a massive uh, disaster. Another regret is that uh, I don't think it was my or, you know, it's a system, system, system failure of the United Nations that we could not have done much more for Syrian people. Security Council has always been divided on Syrian issue, and even purely on humanitarian issues, they were divided and vetoed the resolution to support humanitarian goods. And then, in the end, after, 11, after 10 years of this crisis, conflict continuing, 6.6 million Syrian people have become refugees somewhere, out of their country, either in Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, and elsewhere. More than 5 million people are living on the poverty line. All these infrastructures, water, energy, electricity, med medical facilities, they are almost all destroyed by their own fighting. So this is a terrible, and I feel you know, very sorry and regrettable that the UN could not have done more. That is, I call, system failure, the division among uh, prominent members of the Security Council. Yes, you, you've said that the P5 reflects the global power structure of 1945, not today, but you also said that that is unlikely to change ever. 
um, and also pointed out how the UN Charter does not give the Secretary General power in this arena. But but then what are we left with? I mean, what are the procedural changes, I guess, that could happen to make the Security Council more responsive to today's geopolitical issues and to focus more on the global greater good, which is what you've emphasized? There have been many attempts, uh, efforts to make uh, some reforms in the Security Council. There are many also uh, big and uh, countries who really want to join as a permanent members of the Security Council. But somehow, all these efforts have not yielded any, any uh, uh, progress. Everybody was talking about, okay, let's reform the Security Council. We agree. Even the P5s, they say that we agree. Let's have a reform then they are not moving. So in a metaphorical way, I was saying that uh, after frustrations, I I said in a metaphorical way, it's something like uh, you are sitting in a car with uh, gear you know, neutral. Then once after such a strong pressure, strong pressure from the member state, they just put the gear shifted gear to one. But at the same time, they were pressing brake as hard as and pressed this accelerator. There was a big you know, engine sound. But this car was not moving even an inch. Same way. So that was my, my expression, expressing the concerns as well as a frustration on the lack of uh, political power. Before we go to audience questions, I do want to just ask you about what you've described as your signature achievement, which is the Paris Climate Agreement. And I mean, it truly is an achievement and it requires, you know, the 180 biggest emitters to develop aggressive carbon reduction plans to keep global CO2 levels from rising by more than two degrees Celsius by the end of the century. It also arguably has a weak enforcement structure. And I guess I'm wondering how you assess its success five years later, especially as there has been little consequence for nations that, that ignore the pledges. Uh, this is a binding agreement. Normally, General Assembly agreement is not binding. And this is an international agreement with a binding force. So each and every state parties, 197, they have to implement what had been agreed in Paris Agreement. Uh, but there is a significant lack of political will. Some people say that you know, it is uh, up, to, up to developed countries because it is uh, all these uh, OECD countries who have caused greenhouse gas emissions and the degraded ecosystems through their, in the name of industrialization. Then, but the impact of climate change did not care where you are living. So all developing countries have been also devastated by this uh, rising sea level and rising global temperatures. 
Therefore, there is no one except, you know, uh, who would be except, uh, exempted from this. Therefore, we have to take urgent action, uh, all of us, but this campaign must be led by the wealthy countries, OECD member states, United States, and European Union, and also China as a number one global emitting country. United States is number two global emitting country. Republic of Korea, number seventh. Japan, number five or number six. Therefore, all these rich countries, they have to mobilize all political will, first of all, commitment, resources, science and technological support for all this. That's why uh, I have been working very hard, even after my retirement, as chairman of a Global uh, Center on Adaptation, which is headquartered in, uh, in the Netherlands. And I'm also, I have been working as a national cha- chairman of the National Council on Climate and Air Quality, even though I just stepped out of that uh, last month, then I'm using all my, you know, uh, all my efforts and all my capacity as a former Secretary General uh, to speak out to the world leaders to unite. In that regard, the G7 summit meeting uh, had uh, very serious discussions and also uh, agreed to fully mobilize $100 billion a year. This is an agreement by this Paris Agreement. Uh, when they, they made a political statement, in fact. United States, Japan, and the uh, you know, European Union, they would mobilize $100 billion, and that has been accepted by whole state parties. So from this year, every year, they should provide the science and technological support in the amount of um, $100 billion until such time when we will be sure that we have taken enough action. That was reaffirmed by G7 summit meeting uh, last month, uh, this month, earlier this month. Well, we have some questions from the audience and a couple speaking about world leaders and asking questions about President Biden. So I'm going to combine a couple here. These uh, questions include, do you think the current state of affairs under U.S. President Biden are going in a positive direction? And do you have any advice for President Biden? I had been working closely with uh, then Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, working together with uh, President Obama. So uh, I have known him uh, very well, and he is a very committed, very experienced person. He has been a lifelong politician, uh, but what he has been doing as a chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Congress, as well as uh, now a vice president, now as a president of the United States, we have a much, much higher expectation and hope that he will lead the, not only the United States, but this a global multilateral system in a, in a way to meet the expectations of um, sustainable development goals and sus- uh, Paris Climate Change Agreement and also uh, human rights, human dignity. 
I am confident that he will really exercise his global leadership based on global citizenship. Of course, there are domestic politics, Republicans and Democrats. I know that how you know, they struggle for political power, but the U.S., there is a lot of expectation from outside world, particularly developing countries, that they are happy with the way multilateralism is now returning to its normal track under the leadership of President Biden. That's what I expected from him, and I am very uh, hopeful, and I'm quite convinced that he will, uh, he will be a good leader. Well, another audience question here is, I've read that you described your negotiation approach as being inspired by water. Can you tell us why? That's very interesting. When I was first appointed and beginning my job as a Secretary General, there was some uh, difference appreciation and, uh, you know, between the East and West, what is the virtue? What's the leadership? The Western leaders, they should be more assertive and sometimes aggressive and direct. But this Asian culture, <clears throat> which I have been taught since I was a young boy, is more subtle and respectful for others, first of all. So I, I've been speaking to UN staff, starting from UN staff and talking to uh, world leaders about the way saying that um, the highest virtue of a human being is to act and look like water. This is uh, <clears throat> in Korean, we search Sang Son Yaksu, that is uh, four just uh, uh, four words in Chinese, also four, four characters. That means among all the um, virtues, then water, water is the one which really we, we should, uh, <clears throat> we should uh, use as, you know, uh, leading by example. Let me give, give you some uh, examples like this way. Among five elements uh, which has been discovered by the physicists, physicians of the world, there are five elements. Water, fire, wood, metal, and soil. soil, soil. Those are five elements. Then... Among these five elements available in this planet Earth, which is the strongest one? People often think that is a fire or steel, but there is nothing which, we, which can beat water. Water can extinguish, fire can be extinguished by water. And even metal, just water can just decompose it. And wood too. But water does not, water has some special characters in itself. It is uh, colorless, transparent, and it always flows from 
higher to lower place. If water does not flow and stay long in one place, that becomes stale. That is a corruption, which we call it in our normal societies. And water does not confront all the times unless it is absolutely necessary. So when water flows and there are rocks, then it just goes around the rocks, not just confront unnecessary. But look at the case of a flooding or a tsunami. Then water can roll, hold the huge rocks, and even you know, destroy concrete feral buildings, big buildings. That's why you can use your power anytime, but not until it is absolutely necessary. But be modest. First, listen to the people, people's voice, and lead by example. That's what I've been trying, to lead by example. And I really wanted to show to my staff of the United Nations, and they gradually understood my my leadership style. That's what, you know, one day, uh, you may check, the August 4th is the birthday of President Obama. One year, I, I, it was maybe 2014 or so, I wrote a calligraphy, these are four letters. Then I have given it to President Obama. Look, Mr. President, your leadership should be like water. So I pointed out the water sui, su, su, or in Chinese, sui. He was very much amused and very happy, and he agreed with my, my philosophical point. Well, I just have two more questions. One is an audience question, and actually we have audience members who really want to know what you do in your personal time. Uh, this person wants to know if you have any hobbies or something that you like to do in your free time. Another person wonders if there's a favorite book or author that you have. So, Well... Uh... I myself uh, think I am a sort of a dull person. So I didn't have much, you know, a special hobby. Uh, I've been walking all the time. So that's what I feel sorry for my children and for my uh, wife too. But I've been working very hard, very hard. Uh, when in school study, when in the job, uh, public service, I really did all devoted all my time for public service, public service, day and time, day and night. As a Secretary General, I have been really trying to listen to the voices of people around the world, particularly those people who would be discriminated, who would not have any power or under under suppression of uh, autocratic leaders. So constantly I have been traveling around the world. I don't claim that I have visited all 193 countries, but at least I have visited 160 or some countries, except the small, small Pacific Island Caribbean states. And I met almost all the leaders of the world, listening to their voices, what their challenges were. That's what 
That's not hobby, that's a work. But that is what one... That's as close as you get. Yeah, yeah frankly speaking, uh, I don't have anything to uh, tell you that I am good at a certain sports. Or, uh, but I think uh, I have also been able to uh, enjoy good friendship, some uh, respect from the people, and uh, by being humbly approaching the people, so they all listen to my voices. So I've been speaking sometimes directly to the eyes of the autocratic leaders. You should not do this. You should care your own people. So that has been my, my life uh, until now. And as a former Secretary General, then you may ask what I am doing. I have more jobs than Secretary General now. <laughs> Secretary General is just one, one job. But now I'm holding almost two dozens, at least two dozens of international and national positions, mainly working on humanity issues, uh, climate change, sustainable development, gender empowerment, global citizenship, etc. Well, you've established the Ban Ki-moon Foundation for a Better Future to promote global citizenship. And I do wonder if you could leave us, the audience members, With what that means, how to be a global citizen? Global citizen. So I have established two uh, centers, like uh, first one, global global center uh, on global, uh, Pangimun Center on Global Citizens in Vienna, Austria, and Pangimun Foundation for a Better Future. They are mutually reinforcing my activities as former Secretary General. Then what does global citizenship means? That is what when you address something, before you think about you or your own country, your own family, you should care the other persons. Listen first carefully and sincerely the challenges, what their challenges are. That was inspired, that I was inspired by what President Kennedy told me in 1962 when I met him in, at the White House. He said, the national boundaries do not mean much, but national boundaries meant much at that time during Cold War. But he said, didn't mean much. And the, the question was whether you are ready to extend your helping hand. That's a compassion. So one can have a passion always, but you should have compassion. All this, when compassion, when passion is not matched with compassion, you may not know where you are going. You are going sometimes most probably wrong way. But this compassion you have, sometimes young people, I'm talking to young people that they are full of passion, energy. But this energy and passion should always be matched with compassion. Look for beyond your, beyond your borders and look for other people, how you can help. And before you insist on your own views, just listen. That's a beginning of the global citizenship. 
Well, former UN Secretary General, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you very much. It has been a great honor and pri privilege for me to talk with the distinguished members of the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco. And let us work together to make this world better for all. That is our and your moral and political responsibility living in 21st century. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Eighth UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, his new memoir is Resolved, Uniting Nations in a Divided World. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts, you can do that at commonwealthclub.org. I'm Mina Kim. Thank you very much and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.